Stephen. Hello, Stephen. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, we missed last week. Everyone just got really busy, and and but but here we are. Here, but here we are. Let's not dwell on the past. And and there's nothing much going on in the world anyway. Nah, it's tumbleweeds. <laughs> um, it's, Turn on it's the a, news, and it's nothing but golf. Yeah, it, it's amazing that here we are, weeks later, and Ukraine is still run by Zelensky, still fighting on. It's still an independent political entity. Uh, nobody, nobody predicted that they could withstand this law. Even I thought, valiant effort, they're going to fold eventually. They're going to have to look at the the the, the size of the Russian military, but wow. Uh, this is a real David and Goliath story. Now we don't know the end of the story yet, but it and the 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 impact, the, the deaths and the destruction in Ukraine are staggering. Uh, definitely, I believe, reached the level of uh, war crimes, and but they're still there. Yeah, and you know they're. I mean, and you can chalk it up to, to two things probably. One is the the Russian army not as good as everyone thought it was um you know their equipment is breaking down you know and they also miscalculated they thought this was going to be a real blitzkrieg and just run across so you you don't need a lot of fuel you don't need a lot of uh, you don't need a lot of food you don't need supply lines because it's going to be like we're going to overrun this thing in, in a weekend yeah and when you get bogged down all of a sudden you've got no fuel you've got no ammunition you've got no uh, no food and so, you know, the Russian army, not all it was cracked up to be, which is why they're running basically a terror campaign against civilians now, because they can't win militarily. So they're just going to take it out on the civilian population. But the other side of it is the Ukrainians, wow, can they fight? Uh, they, you know, and part of it is the home field advantage. They are fighting for their lives. They're fighting for their homes. They're fighting for their loved ones. And you fight awfully hard. When when that's what's at stake, you know, if you're the Russians going in, what are you fighting over? You know, they a lot of the, you know, according to the, the reports, a lot of the Russian soldiers had no idea that they were even in a fight. That they thought originally thought they were there, you know, on maneuvers or that they were being welcomed in or humanitarian or they had no idea that they were even in Ukraine. They just said, just take that road and uh, you know, just keep going. They're like, okay, uh, where are we now? So, well, you're, yeah. guess what? Now you're in Ukraine. Is it really? So you've got that versus people who are fighting for their lives. And, you know, Ukrainians, even though they have relatives in, in, in Russia, uh, you know, it's amazing how many people in, whether it's in Maripol or in, in Kiev or in, in, in Kharkiv, uh, they have relatives in Russia who you know, apparently they call and, and the Russian, their Russian relatives don't even believe them, believe them when they say that they're being bombed. They think, really? oh, no, no, you know, th this isn't happening. This is, you know, the Russians are saying, no, no, we're all watching the news right now. And, and, you know, there's nothing going on. All right, look, the, it's one of those things you hold the phone out the window, listen to the bombs falling and, and the Russian relatives still don't believe that there is a real war going on in Ukraine. But even though that there's this, this ethnic similarity and family connections to Russia, a lot of Ukrainians don't like Russia very much. They still remember the, the Homodor, the, uh, the, yes. the, uh, the genocide of, of, of Ukrainians Stalin. in the thirties under Stalin, yeah. because Ukraine was a little too uppity. So he just took all their food and 10 million of them starved to death in a, in a forced, uh, a forced famine, which was you know, one of, one of the great genocides of the 20th century. Absolutely. And Ukrainians remember that they really do. And it's like, no, we're going to, we're going to fight. And so, you know, 
given enough arms, you know, anti-tank stuff, uh, you know, a lot of it on a shoestring, they're putting up a heck of a fight. Now the Russians are regrouping. They're, they've brought in, as of uh, yesterday, a new, uh, you know, the, the brutal general who was in charge of, of, the, uh, of the war crimes in Syria when the Russians were in there. Um, so it could get a lot, a lot nastier because he was known for targeting civilians in Syria. Um, so we'll see what the next phase brings. I'm wondering, it just shows the, the impotence of the rest of the world uh, when, they, when they choose not to act and all they do is, I mean, these the sanctions are severe, but when faced with uh, the possibility of accepting a failure, uh, Putin would rather have the sanctions because him and his buddies, they may lose billions of dollars on paper, but they still have billions of dollars. And the people who feel it are the Russian citizens, and they don't give a damn about the Russian citizens. These are no. it is not a functioning democracy anymore. They don't have to worry. Putin doesn't have to worry about getting reelected. He's an he's an autocrat. He's in charge of the country. It's his. So, if as long as uh, NATO countries refuse to get involved militarily, it's uh, it, it's a war of attrition against Ukraine. And even though they're you know talks of peace talks and, and hum, humanitarian corridors that Russia doesn't, doesn't uh, obey, um, you would think that the, the world with all of its outrage would have stepped in already. But no, yeah, there, there, there's an impotency in the West that comes, you know, and, and early, early on, you know, I, and, and I, I believed that it was, you know, it would be, you know, very, very dangerous for NATO to get involved in a hot war because if you put, uh, you know, NATO and American troops inside Ukraine and actively fighting against Russians, then you got World War III. Uh, but you and you know, and everyone talks about the nuclear threat too. You know, well, Russia will use its nukes. Well, United States has got nukes too, but Russia didn't isn't worried about that. It's really a one-sided thing. It's you know, the United States' threat. Is, is, is proven to be nothing. So if, if the United States went in and along with NATO um, uh, countries and, and said, okay, here's a corridor. We, you know, here's, here's a no-fly zone. We're gonna bring in our troops as peacekeepers and provide a buffer so you can't get to, um, you can't get to Kiev now from Belarus or anywhere else. And we're gonna you know, put ourselves along the borders of Donbass. Um, and at least mark that part of it off and along the border of, of, of Crimea and say, like, these are areas you can't come in here because you're going to be fighting real troops. What would, you know, is that calling Putin's bluff at that point? They say, well, you know, what if what happens when the first American gets killed by a Russian? You know, is there war at that point? And do the big boys bring out the nukes? But, but not likely. Uh, yeah. I don't think I mean, listen, during Trump's reign, um, Russians were putting bounties on the heads of American soldiers and nothing happened. Yeah. And when you're of a certain age, like myself, I say, you know, you remember the Cold War, you remember threats of nuclear retaliation, which were going on you know, in the late 60s and the 70s. And, you know, I, you know, I was too, too young to remember the, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis. But, you know, there were proxy wars going, you know, all over the place, whether it was in Vietnam or, you know, in smaller skirmishes and other, you know, in, in other places where basically the U.S. and, and the, the USSR were toe-to-toe -to -toe, um, through proxies. And, yeah, there was a fear that it would 
nuclear war break out and it probably came closer than a lot of us want to remember but it's now there's there's such a a paralysis um where all of these big powers of the west stand by and go like well we're not getting involved because because you know it could get ugly and say well it really is ugly for the ukrainians maybe the west has decided we're not ukraine isn't worth it we're you know we will we'll get stuff through the back door to them they can get rocket launchers and some light armor and bullets and helmets and stuff and they can go off and, and fight as, as best they can but uh, and and sanctions sanctions are are important although like you said it, it really you know hurts the the poor people more than it uh, has any real influence on uh, on the oligarchs and, and putin but the you know anything less than going in there and saying no we're drawing the line here putin you can't do this withdraw your troops um you know we're taking ukraine under our protection they're not becoming a member of nato they might become a mem- member of the eu which is you know basically a trade body um but you know not a military alliance but you can't come in here uh, you just can't have wars of aggression like this and especially against civilians um but putin is counting on the west being as they used to say in the james bond movies decadent and weak and uh, you know, not, uh, not you know, Putin is able to get away with this because the West doesn't have any stomach to stand up to 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 Putin. I mean, I remember growing, uh, being uh, a teenager in the '80s, when it was uh, popular media everywhere was about nuclear war, and the, there was this general perception amongst teens that yeah, we're going to have a nuclear war, and it, it seemed like it was a fait accompli that it was, especially with more of the, the left-leaning teachers that I had in high school who were constantly pushing the notion that, well, it doesn't really matter what we teach you because there's going to be a nuclear war. Reagan's going to start a nuclear war and it's blah, 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 blah. And we had TV movies like The Day After, um, supposedly showing the true horrors of a nuclear war, but of course it was Hollywoodized. Yeah. Oh, don't um, forget my favorite, Red Dawn. Red, Red Dawn. Red Dawn wasn't nuclear, though. No, there was a nuclear war, but it it, it took place in in China between uh, Russia and China. Right. It it didn't it didn't hit uh, the U.S. No. But the the notion that uh, we were going to have a, a nuclear war was something that sat over our heads like the sword of Damocles. But in the end, I think both sides recognized that there was a professional class of politician at that time. Um, that recognized this, this. There's no winner in this. There's no. There's no percentage. There's no winner. The point of wars is always about re, is always about resources, and, and whether that be land, whether it be uh, minerals or oil or or food, um, it's all about space. It's all about taking taking um, land for whatever the value of the land is, and sometimes it's just to to have more space to expand your population there would be no possible no no outcome of a nuclear war whereby there would be that benefit no, and so no one, wins. no one wins and so they, they didn't do it and i don't think they do it now that the difference is that i do think that uh putin is a uh, a wild card uh, you know we can hear the stories about how he's crazy he's unhinged you don't know how much of that is uh, coming from propagandists. It's very difficult to get. And, you know, what was it uh, uh, Churchill said about the Soviet Union? 
They're oh, a riddle. A, it's a mystery wrapped wrapped in a riddle, uh, wrapped in an enigma. An enigma, yeah. Um, we really don't know what the state is, but we do know that what matters to Putin is maintaining this image of strength because, you know, otherwise he's like, you know, in a pack of dogs when the leader shows weakness, they just attack him. Um, so he's fighting for his actual life as well as his political life. Yeah. And, and his cares. popularity has gone up. I mean, during the course of the Ukraine war, you know, to, to the extent that polls exist in, in, in Russia, mm -hmm. you know, he's, he's, he's gone from the fifties in terms of his approval rating into like the high eighties, um, you know, cause war, you know, war is good for business. If yeah. you're a politician, it shows your strength. It shows, you know, the, the you know, the glories of Russia uh, that they, you know, they, they still hearken back to. So, you know, he's, he's got a real, he's got a reason to do this, but there's got to be a point where it's a law of diminishing returns when, you know, sons don't come home, when the economy is in tatters, when you're lining up again for shoes and for turnips, um, when, you know, you actually see the consequence of it. And like I say, if it ever got into a, a real full-scale war, then, you know, Russia, Russia would suffer as, as we, we all would. And I think the popularity would disappear pretty quickly. Well, his popularity really doesn't matter, though. No, because it's, it's not it's like nice free to elections. have. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's a nice to have for him, but it's it, it's it's irrelevant. Um, it'll be interesting to see. And the thing is, we can sit here in Canada and say that it'll be interesting to see what happens. But this is these are real people. These these are real uh, cities that are being destroyed, real homes, um, people's lives, their livelihoods. It, even if Russia were to, to leave tomorrow, Ukraine would be a, a wreck for decades to come. It oh, would the, be the a, cost of rebuilding alone would be and I haven't staggering. Heard talk about reparations yet. It's one of those things that, you know, after after the Second World War, you know, Germany paid you know, massive reparations. And they, they also were the recipient of, of martial aid to rebuild because they finally you know, realized after World War I that you can't leave a place in ruins. You've got to rebuild in order to uh, make sure that the threat is neutralized and people actually appreciate a better life. But uh, I don't know if the, you know, the billions of dollars, the yachts and all the rest are going to be liquidated and, uh, and funneled into Ukraine for rebuilding. There's no way you're going to get Russia to pay for reparations just because there's no mechanism for that. But and you know, the cost Russia doesn't even have the money. Russia's no. not economy is not very large, despite having all that the petrodollars. It is not a very large economy in the scope of things. No, it, it is a tiny in terms of GDP and all the rest. It is a, a tiny, and like you say, oil and gas and a couple of key minerals um, uh, are 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 important to their economy, but. You know, they're not a real exporter of technology or of cars or any of those things you think of when it comes to uh, to to a real vibrant economy. And, you know, and to, for the first time that, uh, you know, Russia is um, in, in danger of defaulting on its foreign debt, it's actually technically defaulted on its foreign debt because every country lives on foreign debt. I mean, somebody buys your bonds or extends you credit to buy things. And, you know, for the first time, um, S&P has said that uh, because it's offering its bondholders, so these are like your, your, your Canadian T-bills or your other kinds of investments that, uh, that people buy, um, you know, Russia has offered its bondholders payments in rubles, um, not in dollars, which is what uh, the, uh, the bonds call for, which it makes it in a, a, technical, uh, a technical default. So there's your economy gone right there because if foreign countries 
you know, and investors aren't prepared to to pay for for your your cost of running business in 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 Russia through um, through foreign debt, then you've got nowhere to turn to. You know, maybe China, I guess. But if you, you know, if an investor, a foreign investor, can only be paid back in worthless rubles, they're not going to invest, and you've got no money to build bridges and infrastructure and what social programs they might have. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't, you know, I, I feel terrible about what's going on, but I, I think like many people, I feel impotent because we sit here and we give money to, to the charitable causes, yep. the humanitarian causes, in my cases, in my case, humanitarian and pet causes. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, that's what, that's really the limit of what, what we can do. And we've got to sit here and watch a proud nation just be be bombed to the stone age it's yeah it's uh, tragic isn't even the right word uh, i just keep hoping that that there will be some kind of peace deal brokered but what's the benefit to putin if he's telling his people back home that he's winning why would he tell them he made peace and it was yeah. before achieving his his goal so yeah, and, and the only demands that he has, I mean, I, I saw Zelensky uh, interviewed on 60 Minutes and they asked him, you know, can you imagine a peace deal with Russia? And he was like, and he was, he was cagey. He said, well, yeah, I, you know, we want a peace deal with Russia, but Russia wants part of my country. Um, you know, they want, you know, the Donbass, they want Crimea, um, which, you know, has been part of Ukraine for, for decades. And it's like, well, how, how do you get to yes? How do you, as, as, as the old, uh, you know, mediators uh, programs used to say, how do you know, how do you get a win-win scenario when one side wants to cut off your arm? And that's the only thing they're going to be uh, satisfied with. Yeah, you don't. Um, so on that uplifting note, why yes. don't we switch to another topic? Other happy um, news. Uh, as we're recording this, uh, it looks like Macron and uh, Le Pen are, heading to or are going to be in a runoff and she is again um a scary figure a, a far-right uh national socialist figure and she is i mean by the time people listen to this it may, may be decided but at this point she's on the precipice of potentially becoming the president of france um uh, what would be the what do you think would be the political fallout, the political ramifications of Le Pen winning? Well, well, I, th- I think it would be it would, it would be terrible. I mean, she is far right, um, you know, ultra nationalist, um, racist. You know, all uh, that whole whole bundle of ugly sticks. Yeah. And, but but France has an interesting electoral system where they have these runoffs, and the tradition has been that often the first ballot that the, uh, you know, the, the real right-wing parties, the protest vote kind of coalesces around them, you know, and, and Le Pen has sort of been there um, fairly strong in the early stages before. But then when they finally do the runoff, your rank and file French voter comes to their senses and goes like, no, 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 we're only, we're only, you know, throwing a scare in you here uh just to let you know that we're unhappy we're not going to vote for for the crazy right wing person but you know there's a tipping point where finally you wake up and you go like oh my god we we did actually you know elect the nazis again um this is this is terrible uh you know who'd have thought it um so i'm not sure um 
you know, and, and, and Macron himself is, you know, he's not a party politician guy too. It's one of the reasons he was elected is because he, you know, offered a, a you know, a, a, a third way outside of the, the usual political structures of, of France. Um, but again, it just, you know, comes down to a, to a popularity contest. I, you know, I can't see them voting for Marine Le Pen, but, but the world is, is sadly flirting furiously with right-wing politics again. Um, you know, we see it in, you know, in Canada too, you know, the, our, our own conservative party is going through a crisis uh, of, uh, of conscious, you know, the, you know, there's a battle for the soul of the conservative party represented by Pierre Balavre and Jean Charest representing sort of the extreme right cranky unhappy protest grievance vote um on the right with with Polev and sort of a moderate um centrist conservative platform with Charest and there's enough cranky miserable people out there right now who feel hard done by even though you know for most of them life has never been better um you know in in absolute terms I mean things go up and down but you know, on the whole, things are pretty good, but people just get cranky and, and COVID has, has fed into that too, where people feel like, I you know, I'm mad because I've been stuck at home with my wife or husband for two years now, and my kids are driving me nuts, and some, you know, by God, someone's going to pay for this. So you go out and you do a protest vote, which is how we got Rob Ford as, as the uh, mayor of Toronto, and and how we got Doug Ford as the premier of Ontario. You know, it's a protest vote where you wake up the next day going, what the hell did I do? Yeah, it's... Uh... I wish that the uh, with the Conservative Party that the moderate side was represented by somebody who's less of a spent force than Jean Charest. Um, now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he's not as spent a force as I think. But could they not find somebody younger, more dynamic, who doesn't have a in his record that he switched to the Liberal Party to be the the premier of? Quebec for a decade uh, yeah like he, there's there are so many disincentives to voting for him as a the leader of the conser- I mean you want to be the leader of the conservatives but you switched to be the leader of the liberals at one point your bona fides as a conservative are certainly fair to be questioned and I it, it, I just wish they there was a, a somebody a, a standard bearer who didn't seem like both his feet are planted firmly 30 years ago. Yeah. And, you know, there, the nuance of federal politics, I mean, Quebec doesn't have a conservative, you know, a, a big C conservative party. You know, it has parties that have, you know, various pieces of the conservative platforms, uh, but you know, there's no conservative party in Quebec. So it's not like you can say, well, we're pulling a conservative out of Quebec. I mean, Jean Charest is probably as close as you're going to get um, as as a conservative. But try to explain that to someone in Red Deer that uh, you know that some uh, you know a, a Quebec liberal could actually be a conservative. Um, it, it's it's too much mental gymnastics for a lot of people. And of course, you know, Paul Ever is is beating that drum, you know, furiously. That you know, here's this liberal who wants to, you know, who's who's the the bosom buddy of of Trudeau. Um, it's going to be the, you know the the Trudeau Charest alliance. Um, 
and instead of an NDP one. And it, you know, that resonates with the people who vote for the leader, which is very different than the people who, who vote in, in federal elections. You're mm-hmm. talking about a subset of, of, of members of the Conservative Party. And if you don't have a base in Quebec, which the Conservative Party hasn't had really since Mulroney, um, the, uh, where do you pull your your votes when it comes time for a leadership convention because the conservatives have a i think they have a you know one member one vote uh, um leadership convention instead of sort of a, a loosely riding based system and you just can't get people to sign up and you can't get people out maybe outside of, of ontario where we understand quebec politics a little bit um i wouldn't say a lot but a little bit but you know you go out you know you go more than 15 feet from ottawa nobody understands quebec and nobody has the time or, or the inclination to even care about understanding Quebec politics. So you've got a real educated sale that Cherie's got to do as soon as you get into Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, British Columbia. Yeah, I, I don't think he has a prayer when it comes down to it, because the people that support him won't be enthusiastically supporting him. The people who are supporting Polyev are just... Rabid. rabid yeah they're you know the, the enthusiasm is, is is not measurable by current instruments it's so high so they're motivated to get out oh. there and the people who support Sheree are kind of like yeah i guess i'll support them there's no there's no Sheree mania no, and Sheree has angered up the conserv- what what is now the conservative base which is still kind of the western um uh, reform party christian alliance group and you know sort of you know the angry uh, a- angry you know if you're in ontario the you know not even you know some of it's 905 but you're you now have to go it even farther you have to go to like the 705s or the the 519s in southwestern ontario but you know and Sheree is kind of angered up those people by saying things that make you know evident sense to me, which is probably why he's dead in the Conservative Party. Yeah. You know, saying things like, "Well, you know, if you were protesting uh, in Ottawa against the government, and you were supporting those people, as Paul Ever was, uh, and you know, and, and half the Conservative Caucus, he, he says that disqualifies you from from leading this country, which I think it does. Um, but." that is not who is going to be voting for the next leader of the conservative party. You know, the people who are voting for the conservative uh, leader of the conservative party are sitting in the front row at Paul Epstein wearing the, you know, the truckers were right t-shirts. Yeah. It's he, Paul is going to be the, going to be the leader. I think there's uh, very little doubt at this point, at least in my mind that he will be the leader. Also that barring any dramatic sea change in the sentiment of Canadians, he's going to be the next uh, conservative to lose to Justin Trudeau. Yeah, yeah. You know, his party doesn't. His party doesn't have like the, the direction that he's going with the grievances and so on. It doesn't engage the the moderate conservative, and you need to engage moderate conservatives and moderate voters uh, who aren't conservatives aren't uh, aligned don't see themselves as aligned with any particular party that they'll vote based on who they want to vote on for for each individual election um when you when you're just nasty and mean and ugly um canadians do not respond to that like americans 
No, and it's a real, and it continues to perpetuate uh, the urban-rural divide where, you know, in the last federal election, not a single conservative won in Toronto, uh, which, you know, you know, everyone goes, oh, Toronto, you know, you've got such a big opinion yourself, but it's, it's 40 seats. Um, you can't write that off. You can't write off Montreal. You can't write off, you know, London, Ontario, or downtown Ottawa, or, you know, even Calgary is, you know, is starting to show that it's, you know, unhappy with, uh, with the Conservative Party, both federal and provincial, um, you know, and Vancouver. If you can't win in a country that is predominantly urban, and if you can't win in the urban areas, then you've got a pretty thin deck to build a pathway to victory in a federal election. You can win, you know, they'll win parts of Alberta and Saskatchewan by landslides. And, you know, and the liberal will get, you know, two, two, uh, you know, two votes in a Tim Hortons coupon uh, <laughs> at election time. But, uh, you know, it doesn't matter if you win it by a landslide, if you're going to win it anyway, and the liberals or the NDP are going to squeak by in a bunch of marginal ridings where people are like, you know, I'm not comfortable with, with the extremism that, you know, Paul Evera represents. And he, and he does, he represents, as you said, you know, <clears throat> some of the worst aspects of American politicking, you know, the, the outright lies, the memes, the, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the nastiness, the taking stuff out of context, the, you know, the take no prisoners attitude towards uh, consensus politics. Uh, you know, Canadians are just tired of that. Yeah, they're, they're tired of it. And they've never been really in favor of it. The last time I saw Canadians in favor of something like that, really, I mean, outside of Alberta, because Alberta, they just, they, they get conservatism fed to them with their mother's milk. But in Ontario, when um, in reaction to Bob Ray's NDP, we voted in the hardline government of Mike Harris, which was a very cruel government, um, mean, nasty. And, you know, I'm very aware that uh, I ran under Harris's banner as a conservative in 1990. And then when he got elected, I quit because I, I quit the party because the, the, the meanness and the scapegoating and the beating up on the vulnerable, I just couldn't, it wasn't my brand of conservatism. Um, mm -hmm. But that was the last time I really remember people cheering on the the, the punching down, the way that uh, the way that the modern conservatives operate, which is beat up on the vulnerable, lie a lot, um, and your supporters pretty much know you're lying, but they're the kind of lies they like, and that that help them get what they want, or they believe will help them get what they want, so they'll support the lies because. They're not really particularly allied to the truth. They're more concerned about what results happen for them than they are with any kind of integrity. And I don't think that that is going to carry the day in Canada. No, and the worst part of of, of that brand of a particular brand of Canadian conservatism is, you know, like you say, you know, there's the cruelty and the you know the the slash and burn and and all the rest. But you know, the, and if if it produced a result. But I say, I mean, if the whole idea was to lower, you know, lower the deficit or to, you know, to trim, you know, un, unneeded fat in government and all the rest, uh, then, you know, it, it doesn't excuse the cruelty, but at least there's, there's a purpose towards the pain. And what we found, you know, Harris, you know, Mike Harris did all these cuts to healthcare and to teachers and to all, you know, to nursing and hospital beds and, and all the rest. 
and still increase the deficit. Um, you know, didn't solve the one problem that, you know, all of this pain was supposed to be for. The same with Harper. You know, Harper, year after year after year, increased the debt. You know, he had a deficit every year, except for his very last one, which, you know, he had to really, he had to sell off the, the silverware in order to, uh, you know, basically break even. Again, all the pain that we went through for, uh, for the Harper years, uh, nothing to show for it. And, you know, in, in Alberta, Kenny's going through this right now. I mean, they're showing um, you know, um, deficits again and nothing to show for it. Well, Ontario as well. All of the, the grand promises of fiscal responsibility and uh, that uh, Doug Ford made, no, um, we're not, in a, we're not in, a, in a substantially better financial situation now than we were under Wynne. Um, he did not reduce spending like he said he was going to, the degree that he said he was going to. He did make cuts to programs that he feels ideologically opposed to, which is basically anything which helps the vulnerable. Yeah. Um, Some of which he's now bringing back, oddly enough, a couple of months before an election. Yeah. At, at, this is the guy who... Was the, not to I be cynical think, about it. This is the guy who I think, was it the first thing he did? Or one of the first things he did was cancel the scheduled increase in the minimum wage. Yep. And then now he's he's the champion of raising the minimum wage. Yeah, it's going up it, 50 cents, but not until October, but you know. Well, then there's the, the whole business about how he cares so much about Ontario that he'll cut the fuel tax, but only if he gets elected. He won't do it right. now while people are suffering. He'll yeah. do it only like if you want this, if you want this little perk, you've got to elect me. Um, and, I, and quite frankly, all the other parties have to do is say, we're going to do it too. And that takes away his advantage. Um, but, you know, it, it talk about holding people, holding a province hostage economically. Uh, I, I hope people see through it right now, still projecting that he could win another majority. And that's simply because of lack of um, any enthusiasm or real presence of the opposition. Now, it's early. Um, if they're smart, the opposition, like the liberals, are thinking, let the conservatives um, uh, blow their, uh, their uh, ammunition now, let them make mistakes, and we'll come in a little bit later, let's keep our powder dry, let's keep our funding in place for when it really matters. Um, I would love to think that's what they're doing, yeah. but I, I, as I've said before on this show, do not, I do not have faith that Stephen Del Duca is the person that will defeat Doug Ford this time around. I think we needed somebody much more dynamic, um, much more easily likable. Um, he, he just seems like a policy wonk. He doesn't seem like somebody that the public will warm to. And Andrea Horvath has already proven that the uh, Ontarians aren't interested in her other than the uh, NDP diehards. Well, so, fourth time lucky. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that she's still there shows that nobody else really wants the job. But I, I just I, I despair that uh, anyone could beat Doug Ford simply because the liberals are blowing an opportunity. I don't know why, of all people, they elected Del Duca. I guess he had the best machine to uh, to win the leadership. And, you know, people didn't think too much of uh, Dalton McGinty either. But no, no, and ended up being one of the more successful, you know, premiers of, of you know, long-standing premiers of Ontario. Yeah, and if I'm wrong, <clears throat> um, I'll I'll eat my hat 
yeah. but <laughs> he's uh he he doesn't stir excitement in me either no uh, I mean, but you never know in, in an election too i mean it's you know if it's going to be based on policies and all the rest versus folksiness i mean it's it's hard to get excited um on you know on on one side or the other you just never know if there's going to be an issue that you know there's a crisis there's a something that 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 catches everyone's attention and uh uh and changes the election but you never want to bet on something like that because you know the, you never know if one of those unicorns is going to come strolling by um and you're going to be able to take advantage of it but like you said at the moment the folksiness and you know the everyone getting $120 rebate on the, your license plate sticker, including people that's being reported who haven't owned cars for a couple of years are getting the rebate. Um, you know, and, and they're giving away a billion dollars uh, of, of, of revenue you know, to people uh, and foregoing it in, in the future, leaving a permanent hole in, in our, 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 our budgets going forward. Um, are people going to be swayed by these kind of trinkets and shiny things and bread and circuses? And unfortunately it looks like, you know, that really does appeal to a lot of people in the population. Now a sixth wave as was announced officially today when, uh, when, uh, when Dr. Moore uh, finally, uh, you know, came out of his, uh, came out of his hole after four weeks and saw his shadow and declared to be at least six more weeks of COVID um he uh you know he said well we're in a sixth wave but you know we're not doing anything about it you've uh, just you know use your best judgment um so you never know whether or not the disaster that that has written all over it in terms of a complete lack of leadership in public health will come back and haunt uh, you know ford's you know chances of being reelected. you know as, I, as I doubt it to be honest with you I think, I think people, people have internalized are, so much of it now that it's, it's yeah. I, I think it's not an election are, issue anymore. No, I think I think that that's uh, the, the, that's gone. The, the the horse is out of the barn with that. I don't think people. I think people generally will support support the notion that we we shouldn't do anything anymore. We should just live with it. Um, so I don't think this is going to hurt him in that way. Um, he you know he waited to announce the the childcare uh, deal with with Ottawa. Um, that's going to be, you know, that he's the thing is he, what he's doing is so obviously electioneering, yeah, that it should make people angry that he's treating everybody like they're so stupid they don't see what he's doing. But the fact is, yeah, the fact is, people are stupid and they don't see what he's doing. And, and those that do, again, where who's the other option? Who, yeah. who you know, I think a lot of people are going to stay home uh, this time around, and. You know, the, for a conservative who talks about paying their paying your way um, to remove our ability to pay our way, I mean, it's typical because then they just say we don't have revenue, so they cut programs that help the the vulnerable, uh, so that middle age or middle age middle class people can get a break on their their sticker cost, which is not onerous. Um, but he that's not very fiscally responsible to permanently remove a level of revenue at that level, especially when you know we're facing so many challenges and headwinds. Um, though I'm what? And, and Ford spending like a drunken sa uh, sailor on infrastructure projects of dubious value that are going to cost billions of dollars. And 
you never get the question like, well, how are we going to pay for this? I mean, yeah. the same way the conservatives are yelling about, you know, the the uh, the, the federal liberals and and their uh, spending in the last budget. Uh, none of it seems to apply to Ford. You know, what's interesting is that uh, I read today that our jobless rate in Canada is the lowest it's been since it's, they started recording jobless rates. Yeah, historic low. Yeah. And but for some reason, that doesn't translate to an upswing in uh, positive feeling in the country, uh, upswing of support of the liberal government. For some reason, and this is the fault of the liberal government, their, their messaging is piss poor and always has been. A conservative government would be would be putting up bunting everywhere, mm-hmm. uh, saying, calling attention to what is a terrific outcome, especially coming out of something as horrible economically as uh, the pandemic, to have an unemployment rate at historic lows. That is an accomplishment. That is also something people can understand. It is a very simple, simply understood metric, and they're eh. You know, eh, shrug. Uh, yeah. it, it, the liberals really do not do a good job of tooting their own horn. Yeah, and as I say, people used to live and die by the employment. It was one of the, the main indicators of how well an economy was doing. Yeah. Um, you know, everyone now is, is focused, you know, so much on inflation, which, you know, you know we could do an entire show on inflation, whether it's, whether it's uh, due to corporate greed, which, you know, Spoiler alert, it is, um, you know, rather than, than and, and temporary international pressure because of, of, of you know, the rebound from COVID. Yeah. I mean, all of those people who now have money because they're now employed are chasing the same number of goods out there. So things get more expensive. And like, like I said, you know, a lot of whether you're a, a grocery store or a car manufacturer, mm-hmm. you know, you've, uh, you know, you can blame inflation for, uh, for price gouging, which is what they've you know, been you know, they've all been found to be doing this right across the board. But, you know, but inflation now is the thing. And the housing thing seems to be the new thing that everyone has got their, you know, the bit between their teeth about complaining about uh, the lack of affordable housing, which, you know, didn't happen overnight. It's been building for, 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 well, for decades. Um, and uh, and now everyone's going, well, what are you going to do about buying me a house? And it's like, well, not really government's job. But, uh, you know, but but that seems to be now what everyone is excited about and not about the fact that people are are employed and for the most part in better jobs, full time paying jobs, um, as opposed to, you know, you know, having to cobble the other three part time jobs. But like you said, the federal government has really been terrible about taking any credit for it or tooting their own horn about it. And they think that, you know, good performance is its own reward. And, you know, believe me, it isn't. (laughs) <laughs> no, it's not. And I'd like to think we did some good performances today, but it's uh, time for us to toot the, uh, the the horn that Fred Flintstone hears at the beginning of the Flintstones and <laughs> <laughs> slide down the dinosaur's tail. Um, Stephen Lawton's is uh, on Twitter at Stephen Lawton's, which is S-T-E-P-H-E-N-L-A-U-T-E-N-S. Uh, please follow him. You will find that it is worth it. Um, on Twitter, no, you know, not, not, not when I'm at the grocery store. Yeah, yes. Stop following him at the grocery store. <laughs> All right, because the responses you're going to get there are not as pithy <laughs> and probably not good for public uh, public dis- dissemination. And you uh, better be wearing a mask. Uh, <laughs> I don't, we'll talk about that another time. Um, and you can find my work at newmusicnation.ca. And that's it, Stephen. 
thank you as always. Hey, great fun. Look forward to talking to you again next week. Yeah, and let's hope it is next week. Let's hope that yes. uh, the fates conspire to... We'll to... clear our calendars. Yes. We'll do... well, I'm going to do nothing between now and next week just to make sure that it's clear. <laughs> All right, that was facetious. Um, uh, he is Stephen Lawton's. I'm Stephen Kersner, and this has been Stephen and Stephen. Stephen. <laughs>